Hello, and welcome to Transfusion's monthly podcast. I am your host, Yara Park. In today's episode, we'll be speaking with Dr. Yvette Miller. This episode is going to be a little different than our average episode. We won't be discussing a research paper, but discussing a larger, broader topic. We've invited Dr. Miller to join us to discuss social justice in medicine. Welcome, Dr. Miller. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Good morning, Yara. Good morning. So would you please tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm currently the executive medical officer for the American Red Cross. I've been with the American Red Cross almost 26 years. My primary um, job involves determining donor eligibility, all donor and recipient facing activities, notification of health authorities uh, when there's a positive infectious disease test result, as well as counseling donors um, and supporting staff and answering donor eligibility questions. That's the short list. Can you tell us what is meant by social justice and what is the social justice movement? Uh, By social justice, it's meant that All individuals have access to the resources and equitable access to the resources that they need to to live their healthiest lives. And so equity in uh, contrast to equality is this. Um, Equality means that every person gets the same access to resources regardless of what their need is. Equitable access to resources means that individuals get the access to the resources that they need to live their healthiest lives. And so the social justice movement and the conversation around social justice involves talking about, not just talking about, but actually talking about strategies for implementation of access to Um, all of the things that communities need, particularly under-resourced and underserved communities need so that the members of those communities can live their healthiest and most productive lives. How does the social justice movement and addressing health equity intersect? So the social justice movement basically encompasses um, the health disparities and addressing health inequities um, movement because you know, as I mentioned, for a person to live their healthiest lives, they have to have access to economic development, you know, living in uh, healthy neighborhoods, access to and delivery of education, um, access to and delivery of health care in the standard manner, as well as being able to live in communities where uh, they feel um engaged and there's lack of violence, there's no over-policing, living in um, an environment that they feel free to live and exist in. Can you tell us a little bit about the social determinants of health? So the social determinants of health, these are areas or aspects of living that if individuals have adequate, again, and equitable resources, uh, access to these resources, they'll be able to, again, to to live up to their highest aspirations. So there are different um, thoughts about the social determinants of health, but essentially there are five of them. Economic stability. And in this country, one of the primary ways that um, families have access to economic stability is through home ownership. And in many Uh, under-resourced and underserved communities, there are restrictions around 
um, access to mortgages, access to, to adequate housing. So that's one of the social determinants of health. The other one, of course, that we commonly talk about and that we're talk, we will talk a lot about in this space is, space is access to, um, to health care. The other ones include, again, environment and neighborhood. Many neighborhoods that are mostly that uh, involve individuals that are under-resourced and underserved, the neighborhoods are not healthy. There's not good lighting. You know, we talk about getting out and walking. There's not much free and open space. Many of these communities are co-located with chemical plants, landfills, environmental toxins. The other um, area of social determinant of health is, again, the community context. Again, being having living in a healthy home where there's not stress and and in um and violence and that the community both the home community as well as the existing community in which people live you know is nurturing and loving so those are the five determinants of health how do we as individuals address systemic disparities and inequities these are very big topics that are moving towards change, but change can be a really slow process. So what are some things people can do as an individual, even if they're small, to push us towards that change? Thank you for asking that question. And, and you know, these are very large areas to address. And so there are small things that we can do as well as larger things that we know have to be um, executed and done as well. But from my perspective, one of the simplest things that we can do is examine our own personal biases. And we all have biases, you know, and and those biases that we have are based on, you know, our upbringing, what's communicated to us by our, our parents, by people that are important to us, as well as by cultural norms. So the first thing that we have to do is examine ourselves. And then once we do that, that sort of opens up our our eyes and our minds and our hearts to be able to step outside of our personal lived experience and then be able to be open to other people's stories. In my life, what has been important for me is the sharing of stories. Because I'm an African-American woman, my experience in this world has been the Black experience. So unless someone from, you know, while I I'm, I'm traveled, I read, I do all kinds of things to expose myself to other cultures. But until I interface with individuals from other cultures and they share their experiences with me, I truly don't know them. You can't learn everything by reading. You know, experience to me is at top of mind of how we, we socialize and we get to understand each other. So me telling my story about the Black experience and then being open to listening to other folks experience, I think that's the first place that we have to start is with ourselves. And then once we're open to, you know, other individuals and other communities experiences, we can find some commonality. If we're stuck in simply identifying our differences, then yes, there's going to be constant conflict. But when we take the opportunity to identify those things, which we do have in common, then that's how we can move forward and identify, you know, those resources that everyone needs to have access to 
in an equitable way, in the way that they need to make themselves and their communities whole. So those are some of the first small things that I encourage people to do. And although I say small things, that's really, really huge examining yourself. Lots of people don't have self-insight. And so for many people, that's a major burden to take a look at themselves and see what their what their experiences are and what their biases are. I think that's a really great starting point for sure. And I love the idea of sharing of stories because we all have different experiences, but you only know your own experience until you listen to someone else's. So I think that's wonderful. So something I wanted to focus on because it's been in the literature a lot lately is the Flexner Report. And I remember hearing about it when I was a medical student, but I don't think I ever read the whole report or knew if all of its implications. Can you kind of give us a background on the Flexner Report? Yes, thank you. So the Flexner Report um, was a report that was um, was asked for by the Carnegie Foundation and the American Medical Association back around 1906, I think. Um, and so um, Abraham Flexner was, you know, an, an influential um, individual in the community that they asked to do research around um, medical education in the United States and Canada, and to basically write a report that would standardize medical education. And that report, again, I said came out in 1910. And so it codified one thing that stands out um, significantly in relationship to that report. So at the time, and I've read different reports about how many medical, black medical schools existed at the time. I've seen some as large as 20, um, but the Flexner report indicated that there were seven um, black medical schools in this country. And that in order to standardize medical education, all of those medical schools that were created specifically to train black physicians were essentially substandard and needed to be closed. And the only two medical schools that should be left open uh, were Meharry in Nashville, which still exists today, and the other school was Howard University Medical School, again, which is in Washington, D.C. So for years and years and years, until the 60s, those were the only two medical schools that at the time predominantly educated Black physicians. So, of course, back in the 1900s, this country was segregated. And so Black physicians could not be educated at white schools unless there were some specific extenuating circumstances why a Black student or two would be admitted to a, a white medical school. So Flexner recommended that all Black medical schools be closed except those two. He also recommended that Black physicians be trained only as hygienist, meaning that they would only be trained to maintain the health of the Black population because the Black population was constantly in contact with the white population and they did not want the sickness and, um, you know, and the ills and the conditions of the Black community to contaminate. And this was language that was used, contaminate the white community because, you know, at that time, the laborers were black people. And so they were in constant contact with them, you know, you know, in close proximity because they were laborers in their homes as well. So black doctors could only be trained as hygienists. They were not trained in, you know, as surgeons or in other aspects of medicine. Um, another thing was that um, the black physicians were trained only to treat 
black patients. Black physicians could not treat white people. White physicians could treat anybody that they wanted, but only black physicians could treat um, black individuals. Another issue that was dealt with in this report is funding of medical colleges and universities. And so once the uh, report was issued and Mahari and Howard were identified as the only two medical schools to be left open, they applied for funding because two of the important recommendations made by Flexner was that they increase the number of laboratory facilities as well as um, create residency programs. But when the two medical schools requested those funds, Flexner said that they should not be funded because if they started funding the black schools, it would not be something that they could continue. So the black medical schools were on their own to, uh, to find funding to, to bring their medical schools up to standard, which was a, an incredibly difficult task. Yet and still, the black medical schools turned out the majority of black physicians that were excellent physicians. And um, when I was a child, my healthcare provider, my physician was um, a physician that was trained um, at Howard University medical school. So those are sort of the main concepts, you know, in relationship to the Flexner report that actually, you know, codified and approved, you know, these, and, and this is, this is racism. Okay. This, this um, singling out a group of people and particularly targeting them and ensuring that their education in terms of physicians would be substandard. That's, the definition of racism and bias. So thank you for giving me that opportunity to share that information. The funding part is fascinating that they allowed them to stay open, but said, don't fund them, which I think is unbelievable. But the whole report's unbelievable. Um, And, you know, truthfully, um, so again, the only two medical schools that were left open at the time was Meharry and Howard. In 19, around 1966, I think, um, Charles R. Drew a Medical University in, um, in Los Angeles, in the Watts area of Los Angeles, was opened. And this was actually, this medical school was opened in relationship to the Watts riots because there were no medical facilities in Watts. And Watts at the time was a predominantly um, black area. And then in, um, I think in 75, yeah, 1975, um, Morehouse Medical College was opened. So still today, there are four medical colleges that, again, predominantly um, educate Black physicians in this country. Another key piece of information is back in the 1900s, when this report came out, 5% of doctors were Black and in 2018, I think it was the AMA or the um, Association of Medical Colleges looked at the percentage of physicians in this country that are Black, and it's still 5%. So you can see from just that simple statistics that the work that Flexner did and the way that, you know, the codification of, of racism and bias in medical education, it some of it obviously still exists today because there has been very, very little progress in terms of, you know, educating and increasing the number of Black physicians in this country. Yeah, it was 2018 that 5% of physicians were Black, um, identified mm-hmm. as Black, even though 13% of the population identifies as Black. So what could be done exactly. to increase the number of Black physicians in this country? 
Well, let me just start off by talking about, um, so when I went to, uh, I went to nursing school before I went to medical school and I, well, I'm here in North Carolina. I live in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I grew up in, in North Carolina and, um, the university of North Carolina has a program called the medical education, um, program or MED program and multiple medical schools across the country have these programs. And so these are bridge programs for individuals who are interested in, um, going to medical school, these bridge programs offer them an opportunity to really experience some of the medical school life, actually take courses that are, where the actual instructors are the same instructors they would have in medical school, you know, get some, you know, support in terms of taking the MCAT, just learning more about the medical school environment. And um, so when I went to the MED program, Again, these programs were specifically created to increase and open up that pipeline for um, black students, as well as other students um, from other ethnic groups and underserved um, communities to truly have access to medical school to increase the number of graduates. And so while, you know, going to medical school and making a decision to go to medical school for many people, you know, it's a decision that they make and may not necessarily be. Um, completely um, uh, uh, educated on all the kinds of things that it takes to go to medical school. So certainly there are going to be a certain percentage of people that drop out and don't don't matriculate, as well as a certain number of people always that never finish medical school. That still does not explain why there's still only 5% of physicians. So the medical schools have to take a completely um, different view. And again, this is a long conversation, which I would love to have again about what does true access to medical school um, look like and what does support through the education process look like so that physicians do edu- do um, you know, uh, successfully matriculate and then, you know, end up graduating from medical school. That's a, a, a long conversation I would love to have again. But um, the medical schools have to really take a different look at um, admissions. And for many medical schools, so for example, when I was in medical school, um, because I had been in the MED program and then I became um, sort of a, a, an assistant or teaching assistant with the MED program, we were allowed to participate in that process of supporting students um, through you know, all aspects of applying to medical school. But for all intents and purposes, the majority of the medical schools in this country, still the leadership is still predominantly white. And again, while people are open minded and open hearted, you know, even when you don't consider yourself to be biased, you know, when you're making decisions, all of those things from your culture and your upbringing, you know, come to bear. And so you use all of those things that you are comfortable with to make judgments about who is uh, who is just who it is justified to admit to medical school. So that gatekeeping, gatekeeping in medical school is a huge thing. You know, like you know, most professions, if you have someone in your family who is a physician, you're going to get that box checked and you're going to be able to move to the front of the line. And medical schools are that way. You know, that's the way it was. There were familiar names in my medical school class that when I looked at some of the physicians that were on staff and some of our instructors, some of my medical school colleagues had the same last name as some of, of, of those leaders and some of those instructors. So nepotism looms large in medical school. And 
most many people from communities of color and underserved communities, you know, don't have that benefit of having someone in their family who they who can lead them through this process based on experience of going to professional school. So the medical schools in this country have to take a completely different look at how we, you know, how we do uh, increase access to uh, medical education and how we determine, you know, who is, quote unquote, worthy to be a physician. So the gatekeeping piece truly just has to be just completely dismantled. So those are my thoughts. I didn't know you went here and did the MED program. That's I meet students even now who are in the MED program. I think it's a great, a great program. It is. It is a great program that I am still connected with today. Um, Cedric Bright, who he left to go to East Carolina, he was a year behind me in medical school. So, and he was the, again, the director of the MED program before he left. And so I have always stayed tied to the program. I would come during the summers and, you know, talk about my experience back then and where I am now and how it helped you know, groom me and support me to be the healthcare provider that I am today. So, you know, I am truly indebted to that program. And, you know, I had always planned to go to medical school. So I went to nursing school first to basically sort of give me some idea of what it will be like, you know, to be truly entrenched in the medical program. But going to MED, I have friends today, today that I have, um, that uh, were my friends and my colleagues at the MED program. So it creates, you know, lifelong opportunities for to develop relationships in these kinds of programs. But apparently these kinds of programs clearly are not enough because many of these programs have been in, in, in existence for 30 and 40 years, or maybe some even a little longer than that. And we're still in the same place that we are. So something is clearly still broken, even with those um, programs that, you know, definitely increase access. You mentioned the pipeline. Where do you think we need to start with younger students to help them with this process and get them the right access? Well, again, I, I just use myself as, as an example. So I, um, when I moved here to, into Charlotte in um, 2010, my office was located near a middle school and I had passed this middle school multiple times. And one day I came in contact with one of the teachers at the school and we just started talking and I was telling her that I was a physician. And she said that they were getting ready to have um, sort of a student, um, a program where students could talk to people about different professions. I guess it was health professions day, a professional day for students. And so she asked me to come and talk about, you know, my journey as a physician. And so I stayed involved with this school from when it was a medical school. They actually closed the middle school, middle school and actually turned this school into a health science um, high school. And I'm now the chair of the board of that health science high school. So for me, Using myself as an example, it's important to get in front of, of students and young folks as early as possible so that they can see and what they can become. Some of the you know, narratives around you know, why people in certain communities you know, don't necessarily um, are not necessarily seen by the dominant culture as meeting their fullest potential. Some of the things that need to happen is you need to see, you need to experience, you know, people that are physicians, that are, you know, economists, that are 
you know, lawyers that are, you know, people from all walks of life, when you see them, you know, attaining these levels, then you can see yourself as attaining that particular level. So I see myself as a mentor and there's so many people in the community that see themselves as mentors and able to to speak to students, guide them, give them advice on the kinds of things that they need to do to be able to excel. That's what our responsibility is. And so we need to get in front of students as early as we can to be able to show them, you know, I'm not special. These are the things that I did to attain this. You can attain these same things as well. So people who have, you know, made become successful, we owe it to the community to reach back and share how we got to be where we are. Although all of our listeners are not pathologists, you and I are both pathologists and many of our listeners will be, something I have noticed in the field of pathology is we also have a severe pipeline problem. I feel like there's not a lot of Black physicians in the pathology field. What should we be doing as pathologists to address this? That's, (laughs) again, Um, The only reason I knew about pathology when I went to medical school is because, honestly, my experience in nursing taught me that I knew I did not want to be a primary care physician. And I had always been interested in um, treating disease because when I was around 12 or 13, my father died of cancer. And so that was it was a traumatizing time for me, but it also gave me that that kernel of of um, desire to be able to learn about what killed my father and see if I could help increase that knowledge for my for myself, my family, and for my community. And so, pathology appealed to me based on my past experience. And so, not everybody has that kind of past experience, but. Again, I didn't know anything about pathology other than I knew it was the study of disease. And in terms of medical school, pathology is just not well um, examined. It's not, again, it's not one of those specialties where you you interface with a lot of pathologists because once you have your courses in pathology um, in first or second year, that's it unless you have a desire to go into pathology. All the other medical specialties, as you go through your rotations, you get to experience those. But if you want to go into pathology, you have to be deliberate in in ensuring that when you have your, um, you know, your electives that you take pathology. So it's for most people, pathology is just something that's done in the lab. And then after you finish those courses, you go into something else and you never, never come in contact with that again. So to answer that question is, you know, in terms of medical education, we really need to be part of the mainstream. Again, pathology is seen as, you know, you only need a pathologist when you need X, Y, and Z done. So we need to make pathology um, seen as a mainstream part of practicing medicine or, or a mainstream um, area of practice and not just one of those that are just sort of relegated to sort of the bottom of those um, medical specialties. Absolutely. And as a residency program director, I would love to see pathology more in the forefront. I think people just don't even know about us. We're the hidden gem of medical specialties people just don't see these days, unfortunately. That's exactly right. <laughs> 
So to switch gears a little bit, I wanted to touch on medical research. So medical research has been overwhelmingly performed in a white male population. Can you talk about the impact of this on the Black population and even more specifically Black women? Yes, thank you for that question. Um, so and when you talk about um, involving marginalized and underserved communities in research, one of the first things that we have to examine is what has been the past history of the uh, research in relationship to that community. Again, it's well known how the Black community has been been used in terms of research. You know, we know about, you know, Henrietta Lacks and the use of her tissue for research, as well as the Tuskegee um, syphilis study. We know a lot about that. We've learned a lot about that. And so when we, so when researchers want to engage um, underserved communities, it's really important that they understand what the history of those communities are. So, you know, one of the important things that came out of of the COVID-19 research is that one of the studies was stopped because they did not have enough research participants that were from communities of color. And so once they went back and re-engaged and um, interfaced with and got, you know, a number of individuals from you know, diverse communities to be part of the participants in the research, then they restarted the study. And so I think that that was a perfect example of what needs to be done up front. So, you know, again, as you mentioned, in general, participants in research are mostly um, white men. And that's, again, just because of the historical bias that really, if, if something is, when you look at men, if this works or particular research or this particular drug works in men, then of course it's going to work for everybody. But what we have come to understand is that you can't necessarily extrapolate how a drug works in one particular population or one, you know, particular treatment works in one population. You can't extrapolate that to the entire population. And you mentioned, you certainly mentioned black women and sort of women in general um, that for and also women that are pregnant. That's a very you know, special class, women that are pregnant. Uh, but there has just been this long history of excluding women from research. And it's based on the fact that, you know, women, you know, may have, you know, because you know, our hormones and our bodies are different, that the research that is being executed may have an adverse effect on women in another way that can't be controlled in terms of the research. And so they just exclude women altogether. So we have certainly learned, you know, over the last, you know, 50 years that we cannot be exclusionary because sometimes when drugs and different treatment modalities are then approved on the market, Certain populations have a higher percentage of adverse effects in relationship to that. And this was not identified during the um, during the trials because they were were were, um, were not included. So what we need to do in terms of research is that, you know, right up front when they are determining, you know, what research needs to be done, the the basic science um, researchers really need to to develop you know, relationships with, you know, a broad range of communities so that when it's time to engage and ask these communities to 
um, participate in research, they will already have a relationship with them. One of the important ways that researchers can have access to diverse communities is by partnering with trusted organizations in the community. So, for example, partnering with organizations like sororities and fraternities. I'm a a member of a sorority and um, my particular sorority has been involved with research projects from the CDC and the NIH because the CDC and the NIH have come to, you know, the leadership in my sorority and ask them to please help them develop the messaging that will resonate with this population um, of of women and of this membership so that we understand and will want to participate in in the the research. So, you know, the standard researcher, you know, asking a population of people to, to participate in a research project will be immediately seen as suspect. You know, what are you asking if I do participate what are you going to do with my tissues and my samples? And, you know, that's not the time to be having that conversation when you're trying to do recruitment. All of the work that needs to be done in recruitment needs to be done, you know, years ahead so that you have the trust of, of, or, of organizations in the community as well as uh, members of the community that can then have conversations with individuals and groups within the community that says, you know, this is what this research is about. This is what will happen with samples. You know, any type of research, you always, at any point, even if you join, you know, the research at any point, you can always step away and say that you do not want to continue because researchers have a way of communicating. I mean, now it's, it's certainly different now that once you get involved in research, you cannot walk away from it. So there's so many things and so much homework that needs to be done ahead of time so that when it's time to do the research, the community is already um, understands what the research is about. And so the community engagement model is incredibly important here. And so the community engagement model means that anytime you have um, there's legislation or there's going to be some major changes in a particular city or in a particular um, neighborhood, the community engagement model is like that research model. We will only come talk to you when we need to talk to you. And so the community engagement model is generally just this episodic engagement that, you know, we're going to have, you know, a couple of public meetings that generally are not um, scheduled at a time that's convenient for the population that you're truly trying to engage. You know, there's no transparency as to why you're trying to engage this population now. And, you know, many people in marginalized and underserved communities, they're working at those times when they schedule these convenient meetings at, you know, five o'clock or six thirty in in the evening. So yeah, there's so much that has to happen around, you know, community engagement. And so that's what researchers can learn from the kinds of things that some community engagement um, uh, models are now, meaning that we are constantly um, engaged with the community, not around any particular you know, event or around any particular um, resourcing um, issue that we're talking about. There needs to be continuous community involvement so that when it's time to make decisions, the community is already at the t- at the table. And you know, we constantly talk about, you know, inviting people to the table. Who 
who determines who's the gatekeeper, who has the resources so that they are hoarding all of the resources. And then when there's an opportunity or what they think is an opportunity to engage the community, then they open the gates and create the ask and invite people to the table. And then when that particular issue is addressed and they feel like they have enough you know, input from the community, then they shut that door again. So the community engagement model is incredibly important and needs to be something that we talk about all of the time. And that community engagement, I think, has a lot of implications for us as blood bankers as well when we think about our donor population, Um, which leads me to my next question. What specific... um, what specifically can we do as blood bankers to address these uh, inequities? So this this uh, work of um, you know increasing diversity of the blood donor pool and creating access you know can go from very simple to very complex. Some of the incredibly simple things that we can do is creating marketing and communication materials that reflect a diverse community. Um, while lots of organizations are certainly you know, doing diligent and working in this space, again, like I've said, I've been doing this job for 25, almost 26 years, and almost universally, unless there has been some intention to ensure that the materials, the outward-facing materials are diverse, most marketing materials really have just white faces on it. And I mean, that's a point of contention now that we are interfacing with communities of color because, you know, we're trying to, you know, even before COVID, but certainly after COVID, many of the, the blood mobiles that we have are those that are hosted by individuals in the community. And so when you're developing those materials that those organizations need to do recruitment, you know, they want to see faces like them on those materials. And so um, there's definitely been a lot of conversation with diverse communities, you know, in terms of developing materials that resonate with the population. So that's something very simple that we can do. Um, The community engagement model, again, involves complete transparency. So when So one of the areas that I specifically focus on is recruitment of African-Americans to meet the transfusion needs of patients with sickle cell disease. And so, you know, as a black healthcare provider, sometimes I'm seen as suspect as well because I am a physician. So just because I'm black doesn't mean that I'm accepted. But the presentations that I create and the the outreach that I do, I do, um, you know, with an open heart, with the understanding that you know, I'm part of the community, but I'm, I'm, I'm dual, you know, I'm part of the medical community, which is definitely not trusted, but I'm also, you know, an African-American physician who lives in the community. And some of the things about this community, I know what's best for the community. And so when I talk about sickle cell disease, I don't, um, you know, I, I, create an opportunity for the black community to understand the connection between sickle cell disease and blood donation by African-Americans because of all of the research and all those negative things that have gone on in the past, there is a still a large mistrust of the medical community by African-Americans. And even with my voice, 
you know, I still have to understand that I may not be trusted as well. So I have to be completely transparent why I am having this conversation and what this means. And that in this country, the majority of patients with sickle cell disease are African-American of African descent. And that because we are, as African-Americans, we have been intermixed with multiple populations over the last, you know, hundreds of years that we've been you know, on this continent. And so our red blood cell antigens, as well as our RH um, antigens are very diverse and in some cases fairly unique. So when we are trying to identify units of blood for transfusion for patients with sickle cell disease, in many cases, the most compatible unit of blood is donated by a person that is African-American, African descent. So when I make that clear connection between sickle cell disease and why it's important for African-Americans to donate, literally time and time again, I hear people say, I never knew that. I mean, this week I was having a conversation. I did a presentation and, and it was a virtual presentation. And in the chat, I just kept seeing this message pop up. I never knew that. This is such a great presentation. Please tell us more about that. So, you know, we think that the African-American community knows a lot about um, sickle cell disease, but they don't. Most people had their first exposure to sickle cell disease, maybe in grade school or in high school biology. And that's basically it. So that's, the place that we can start with education and then being completely transparent why we are coming to the African-American community asking for blood donors and every community as well, why we need diversity in the blood supply. And then the other thing that I communicate about why we need diversity in the blood supply is because Latinos and African-Americans have the highest percentage of group O blood. Latinos actually have the highest percentage and then African-Americans has the um, the second highest percentage of individuals that are blood group O. As many people know, uh, O negative blood and O blood is the most commonly transfusion transfused blood, number one, because it's used in an emergency and used when you don't have time to to determine the exact blood type of that person. So you give them O negative blood. But because the majority of the population in this country is O, we are in constant need of blood, of O blood on the shelf so that it's available at all time for the entire community. And that's our show. Thank you to Dr. Miller for joining us for a really insightful conversation. This has been Yara Park for Transfusions Monthly Podcast. See you next time. Mm -hmm.